So we're going to open up to 1 Samuel 7 tonight. We're also, I'm going to ask you to put a bookmark in Acts 17 and Colossians 3. There's just a couple little passages in the New Testament that I think I, I want you to turn to, see in your Bibles, maybe highlight, underline, circle some words and some, ver- some, some important points. Um, so if you want to put a bookmark in Colossians 3 and Acts 17, we'll turn to them, um, cross-reference some chapters in just a little while. Uh, we're going to be beginning by getting uh, back on track with the story of Samuel. The whole book's been called First Samuel, but we haven't talked about Samuel in a few weeks. Uh, we opened up talking about Samuel uh, by way of his mother. If you'll remember, uh, first cha- uh, chapter one introduced us to Hannah, a woman who prayed for God to give her a son. And you'll remember, Hannah was in a tremendously unfortunate, unfair situation. But that was the world she lived in. Uh, that, that, and as frustrating as that may be to just say sometimes things are stacked against us and there's really nothing we can do about it. Hannah had so much working against her and, and really it only underscores how Israel, the nation of God's people, was so far from where they were meant to be not even considering the rest of the world. Uh, But we really shouldn't be surprised by that because all of this is taking place before salvation was provided in full through Christ. It's important to put this in perspective sometimes. Uh, I, I say this a lot, but when you read the Bible, everything from Genesis 3 to the end of the Gospels, Everything from Genesis 3, which is only three chapters in, so that's, that's kind of ominous. Everything from Genesis 3 to the end of the gospel. So John 20, uh, or John 19, 20, Matthew 27, 28, and so forth. Everything from Genesis 3 to the end of the gospels took place in a world separated from God. A world in complete rebellion to him, which makes it even more marvelous that God shows up in those books, in those chapters, between those two bookends. It makes it even more remarkable that God showed up in those moments, but it's important to understand that between Genesis 3 and the end of the Gospels, it was a completely fallen, uh, completely without redemption, without salvation, without anything that we have and our world's still fallen our world is still broken but there's hope for us that they didn't have because Jesus provides a way back to God they didn't have that way in the days of Hannah now the Old Testament often gets romanticized as these glory days where God was doing things that we wish he would do still today. And of course, we always want God to work and move. But really, the New Testament doesn't get enough attention because that's where God is doing the life-changing, soul-saving work. Of course, there's many miracles in the Old Testament, larger than life, signs and wonders, yes. But there's also some atrocious, inexcusable, sinful displays in the Old Testament, not just in the godless nations, but in the nation of God's own people. In the nation of Israel, there's some just completely just beyond imaginable things that take place that they should have known better, that they should have never even gotten near. Yet the world that was led them down that direction. So for every Red Sea crossing, that's a miracle beyond all miracles. For every Red Sea moment, there's the people of Israel at Mount Sinai worshiping a golden cow performing lewd and violent acts in worship of that idol. So for every David slaying Goliath, there's a David murdering Uriah. For every Joshua leading people into the promised land, there's King Zedekiah being taken captive to Babylon and the people 
in his nation being drugged with him. So you get the point. It should come as a surprise that Israel was at a very bad place not a few decades after they had gotten into the promised land. They waited for 40 years and really 400 years in Egypt. They waited for hundreds of years to be back home. And they get home and they squander it royally. The priesthood was corrupt. The religious system was a joke. People had reduced God down to a box that they played games with and tried to manipulate as we've talked about in recent weeks. The unrest and sin trickled down from there. So that's why, that's why Hannah had to deal with a society that upheld ungodly laws, which you think, why the nation of Israel had ungodly laws? Didn't they have God's law? Yes, and they ignored it. Hannah had to deal with a nation that gave men the rights to marry as many women as they wanted and refused to give the women any right to stand up for themselves. So think about the world that Hannah lived in. She lived in a, in, a, in a nation, a godly nation, that gave men the right and the law, the legal binding, backing, gave men the legal right to replace their wife, but they, could, they would not let the woman leave. And if she did leave, she would be shamed, not the man. That's the world they live in. There is nowhere in the Old Testament where that God says that's okay. God condemns that. God told through Moses, you are made a man for one woman, woman for one man. There's no exceptions. Yet, the, not a few years in the promised land, men are getting married to as many women as they want. Women are commodities. Women are off-the-shelf products. And I don't say that to be insulting to any women tonight. That's just the world that was. Women were like cattle. You traded them. You bought them. You sold them. Can you imagine that kind of world? Hannah was stuck. So she prayed for God to do what she thought could redeem her situation for good. Can you even imagine that? I mean, I, I'm, I'm ashamed to even talk about this as, as a man because I could, you know, I don't even imagine what that would be like living in that kind of world. Now, we raise our hand and wonder, well, why didn't she just leave anyway? Why, didn't she, why wasn't she bold and, and why didn't she stand up against? I'm, I'm telling you, had she stood up against her husband as he replaced her and got a wife that could have kids, had she stood up, she would have been either shunned to the point of exile. Um, there's literally stories in the Old Testament. David's daughter gets raped by her brother and she's the one that gets put into exile. And David doesn't do anything. So if you think Hannah could have just walked out and said, hey, I'm going to be strong and independent, wasn't going to happen. And if she did leave her husband, she would have most likely been taken as a slave to some other man and been completely taken, had her rights taken away. So can we just, can we just agree? It was a mess. It was a ungodly mess. But I want you to think about Hannah for just a minute. Hannah's in that mess. She doesn't get mad at God. She doesn't leave her husband. She didn't really have much of a choice, but she doesn't. Now, I'm not saying that anybody should do that in today's world. You don't have to do that in today's world, right? Uh, Hannah doesn't get mad at God. So she prays for God to do what she thought was the only option in order to redeem her life. Hannah get, came to the conclusion, there's no hope for me. The world I live in, that God is sovereign over, but for some reason has let, been let to be this corrupt, 
The world I live in is not going to allow me to ever have my own story again. So I pray for God to give me a son and that he might be an instrument that God uses to redeem this nation from the mess it's in. I'm telling you, if there's a hall of fame in heaven, Hannah has got to be one of the most awarded, celebrated people in the hall. Don't you agree? I don't think there's many other saints in the Bible that match Hannah's story. Maybe not anybody in the history of the world that matches her story. Hannah's courage and faith saved the nation. That's not an, that's not an, an, an overblown statement. Hannah's courage and faith saved the nation. What did she pray for? For his son. God gave her a son. And what did she do? She gave him right back to God. The one thing that might have would have brought her joy, she gives him right back to God. I'm telling you, we're not worthy to be in the conversation with, with her, are we? Samuel grew up in the village dedicated to the tabernacle, a village of, of priests that lived in the tabernacle. It was, it was in Shiloh at the time. It would later be in Jerusalem. He grew up there as an altar boy under the priesthood. That Remember, the priesthood was corrupt in these days. Yet God sought him out. Remember the story? God says, call Samuel. And, he, and he, Eli thinks he's just dreaming and, and losing his mind. And finally, Eli realizes, hey, God's not talking to me anymore, but God's going to talk to this kid. And he's smart enough and savvy enough to realize, hey, I need to help him get to God because I've already kind of made my bed and my kids are already making a mess of this stuff. So this kid might be the one that can help the nation get back on track. So God called Samuel and raised him up to be a prophet to Israel. So while Israel was just festering in its unbelief and misguided practices, worshiping idols, remember? Samuel has been growing up and being prepared for his time on the big stage. So as we've read the last couple chapters, uh, we haven't heard Samuel because he's just a kid. He's a boy. He's growing up. Meanwhile, the nation of Israel is under duress. It's in bad shape. Not only are they turning away from God, but now the Philistines who are on the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean, the eastern part of the nation of Israel today, the Philistines have moved in on the Jews and are beginning to take back land that they had previously conquered. So if you read the book of Joshua, Israel takes the land that we know of from our maps in the Bible. Yet the Philistines begin to take it back a little bit at a time because of their rebellion to God. So we've seen them conserve idols. Fewer and fewer people even are aware of God, of uh, the God of the ancestors, much less they're not worshiping him. And it's into that world, it's into that generation that God unleashes Samuel. So I know I've said this a few times already, but if you think it's bad today and you think there's no hope today, I want you, I, I, I'm not embellishing this story. I'm not making this story more than it is. I'm not making it worse than it was. It was that bad. And it's into that generation, a completely godless Israel, that God raises up Samuel. Remember back in chapter three where the Bible tells us, the writer says, the lamp of God was still burning. So I can say this definitively. God's lamp, God's light, God's fire is still burned and it still inspires hope. Samuel was the altar boy. He was the one that trimmed the candles. He's the one that replenishes the oil. And now years later, he's a young man and he's gonna light the fire under the nation. We get his first uh, public, in, uh, public uh, address to the nation in chapter seven where they are once again surrounded by the Philistines and they are finally beginning to realize that they've got 
to seek the Lord and, and, and ask for some help. And it's Samuel who comes at them. So we're going to jump in. The way the story kind of breaks is broken up from the previous chapter. We're jumping in at verse number two. And we're going to read through this story. So follow along with me in your Bibles. First Samuel 7, number two. It says, so it was that the ark remained in Kirjath Jerim a long time, and it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And again, that was during that time that the ark had been to, Phil, had been to Philistia. It came back. Nobody knew where it went. Samuel raises up, is raised up, and he begins to draw the people back to God. And this is the story of how that happened. Verse 3. Samuel spoke to the house of Israel saying, if you, are, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisk, which is a, a type of idol or an idol in those days, from among you. Prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the asterisks and serve the Lord only. And Samuel said, gather all of Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together and Mizpah drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. And he doesn't mean he condemned them. It just means he kind of conducted them and, and kind of addressed them. And he was a judge in the proper sense from the previous book, that we, uh, previous book of Judges. So he's the next in line. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together in Mizpah, the Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel, and the children of Israel heard heard of it, and they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now, as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as Betkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit. So this, is, this chapter that we've just read about is, is sort of a prototype, a template of what Samuel was doing in many cities all around Israel. So he was the first traveling preacher, as it were, evangelist of those days. He went from year to year on the circuit to Beth, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So this chapter is really kind of a broad, kind of an over, uh, an overview of Samuel's twenty-year ministry. So there's some things we're going to read about right after this that may have took place during this chapter, or you know, during the time that this chapter addresses. So I want to just talk a little bit up front tonight, um, or in the middle, I guess, tonight about how Samuel led the nation back to God. 
I want to be very clear. It was God who was holding the nation together. It was God who called Samuel and taught Samuel. But the way he reached the nation, undeniably, unquestionably, was through Samuel. So can we agree? God was in control. God didn't need anybody to do anything for him. Yet he chose to use Samuel. So let's draw some, connect some dots here. How does God choose to reach the nation today even though he is sovereign and independent and doesn't need anybody? How does God, what is his choice way of reaching people in today's world as it was in those days? God's choice way of reaching a lost world is through bold voices and bright lives. It has never changed. That has been his method since the days of Noah Right? God used Noah, a preacher of righteousness. God used Samuel, a preacher of, of, of this message to turn back to God. God always uses bold voices and bright lives. He will never stop following that model or using that method. So I don't have to preach the Great Commission here. I think y'all know the Great Commission. Go and preach the gospel. Go and proclaim Jesus. I think we know that. We're going to talk about that a little bit specifically regarding living in a world where it is hard to reach people or, or maybe better to say it is uncomfortable to reach people. If Samuel was going to reach people in his generation, he wasn't going to do it by hiding in the tabernacle where it was safe and comfortable. And I, I, I'm preaching this tonight because it gets me out of my comfort zone. So, if, you know, don't, I'm not just picking on y'all, but this is so true. Every church needs to hear this tonight. Next slide. You don't reach people by sitting in safe, comfy places, praying and believing. If the world was saved by people sitting in buildings, praying and believing the right stuff, there would be no room in our churches. But people are not reached when we sit in comfy, safe places and praying and believing. How do we reach people? By going to uncomfortable, risky places, as in it's not where you feel comfortable, it's not where you feel at home, it's not where you necessarily are naturally inclined to go or around people that you're not naturally inclined to be around. How do you reach people? By going to uncomfortable, risky places and proclaiming and serving. I tell you, I live in a world, we live in a world where the lines are so boldly defined between us and the lost. The rhetoric of the church and Bible-believing Christians i.e. the ones that can actually help reach people. The rhetoric that we use and that churches use, it's become us versus them. It's become let's hunker down. We've lost control. We've, we've got to stay clean and pure and unspotted from the world. We can't get near them. We can't get around them. They can't get near us. We've built walls and we've, built, we've, we've made it very clear. You do not cross this line. We don't go there. They don't come here. We all live in our own corners. We're just waiting for the end. That is the attitude of the church today. Now listen, does the Bible say to be separate from the world? Absolutely it does. But that is telling us to be different and obey the word of God. But if we're going to reach people who have, if we're going to reach people who do not believe like us and do not dwell where we dwell, we have got to go where they are and find ways to reach them where they are. We have to. I want you to think about this. Samuel stepped out on the mission field and began traveling and preaching. He had to enter homes and towns where there were idols everywhere. Idols. It's unthinkable that the nation of Israel would ever 
be a nation given unto foreign gods and idols. And if you, if you ask a Jew in today's world, much more, if you ask a Jew in the ancient world, what is the most offensive sin a Jew can commit? For the Jews, there was nothing more egregious, offensive, blasphemous than adultery. Samuel had been taught as a young boy, idols are of the devil. You do not get near them. You do not get near anyone who has them near them. Idols are bad news. There is no worse practice than idolatry. There is no worse sin than idolatry. So what did Samuel have to do in order to reach his generation? He had to go where they were worshiping idols. Can you imagine the tension? Can you imagine how how overwhelmed he was. I mean, think about this. The Jews, you name it, sexual immorality, intoxication, theft, all of those were secondary sins compared to what they were most sensitive to, adultery. How does the Ten Commandments begin? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So number one, no other God. So what were the Jews trained to be sensitive to? If you have another God, you have, you've not even made it past number one. So the one thing that got under a, Jewish, a, a, a righteous Jew's skin more than anything was idol worship. Now, in these days, every Jew was worshiping idols, except for a few people. Samuel was one of them. Can you imagine how uncomfortable it was for him? More specifically, you shall, have, you shall not make of yourself a, gra- a, crave, a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven or on earth or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them and ser- or serve them. So here goes Samuel to a world where everybody is, commi- is breaking the first two most important to them commandments. Now, I know this is, I know this is mischievous of me, but I gotta do this. This is, this is true. This is, this is convicting. If Samuel had used the excuses we use, well, I, you know, well we can't go to those idol-worshiping heathens. They can't come here either. We can't even associate with them. If Samuel operated by the rules that the church operates by today, would he have ever left his home? No. I'm telling you, this is a big deal. Now, we're going to turn to Acts in a minute, but I want, I'm just going to show you the first verse of the story here in a minute. In the book of Acts, there's a story where Paul is going to Athens for the first time. This is his first true Gentile mission. He's only ever been to Jewish communities in Gentile territories. But in Acts 17, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. That means he was offended. That means he was very upset. That means he was very uncomfortable. If you provoke somebody, you kind of stir them up and you upset them, right? Paul was provoked because he walked into, he had never been into a pure, true Gentile city. He walks into Athens, ancient Greece, and everywhere he looks, there's an idol to one of the hundreds of gods they worshiped. And I'm telling you, I, I don't know what it would be, what would be the similar situation for you or for me. I think I could name a few. Paul walks into this city and he feels like, oh my God, I got to get out of here ASAP, this is the most 
unholy. This is the most offensive place I've ever been. Spoiler alert, he doesn't leave the city, by the way. So let's do, some real, let's do something really convicting. What do you think the equivalent mission field would look like for our generation? Of conservative Bible-believing, which I am a conservative Bible-believing Christian. What do you think a similar mission field would look like for us? For Samuel, it was a mission field full of idols. What do you think a mission field equally as offensive to us looks like? The very people in categories we build walls between. The Bible commands us to figure out how to breach those walls and reach those people. I'm not saying it's not difficult. It's easy for preachers like me to say, don't worry y'all, they're going to hell, we're going to heaven. God doesn't expect us to do anything. It makes me feel better, makes you feel better, makes all of us feel better about churches being smaller. It makes all of us feel better. I can't do that. Right? It'd be easy for me to say, well, hey, you know, we're not going to apply this to us. That was then, this is now. But we can't do that. People who struggle with homosexuality or same-sex attraction. People who are dealing with gender dysphoria. People who have had abortions or may consider abortion. People who have lived rough lifestyles relationally, personally, that we could never dream of dealing with. We must figure out how to reach them with Jesus. We must. We must. You say, Justin, there's nothing we can do. Not talking about it will definitely, we'll definitely make sure there, there's nothing we can do. Talking about it might get us to start praying and looking and asking for help. Now I know what we worry about, compromise. Nothing about reaching requires compromise. It just requires compassion and commitment to not leave a generation behind. Had Samuel threw his hands up and said, I can't deal with these idol worshiping heathens, his generation would have been lost. Had the Apostle Paul not given the people of Athens the time of day, there would be no rest of the New Testament. You know why for years, and, and you might disagree with me, I know I'm young and I'm, I've got some crazy ideas. You know why for years conservative churches could easily be loud and arrogant towards certain kinds of sinners? Whether it was their politics or their sexual orientation or their moral choices, you know why we could do that and it didn't bother anything? Because for years, churches were full, full, and it made everybody feel better about talking about those people out there that we didn't need in here anyway. And we had enough people to take care of us. And if it offended a few families, we kind of felt good about it because, oh, we made those people mad and good riddance. But after decades of that kind of attitude, the church in America, the conservative Bible-believing church, I'm not talking about anybody else, We've kind of reaped what we've sown. And you say, Justin, are you going to blame us on churches being empty? I'm not blaming you. I'm just blaming the attitude that many ascribe to. Why would an entire generation of people who have been condemned and ostracized by the church, why would they ever be interested in going in when they've been told they can never even get near? 
I know, I know, I know. I'm not going to go, I'm not, you're not, I'm not going to go to hell because somebody else is lost. No, I'm not, you're not. It's their responsibility to repent. It's our responsibility to go and reach them. It is. To invite them to follow Jesus. To trust in the God who can handle the mess they're in. I say all that to say, Samuel is going to confront Israel for their sin, in their sin, but he first had to make a decision to go and reach them where they were. They were not sitting in suits and ties in a temple. They were worshiping idols. They were cutting themselves and committing sexual acts in worship of these idols. I feel like today... We are very, we've been trained. I'm not, and I'm not blaming preachers. I'm, I, you know, I'm just, I was trained to do this in church. So I don't know about y'all. I, we're, we're very good at passionately condemning, but we're not so good at compassionately communicating. Listen, I, I, I could be, I, I'd be a really good preacher at, at passionately condemning people because there's a whole laundry list of sins I'll never, ever, ever struggle with. I'm, I'm just be honest. I'm a straight man. I'll never struggle with two big sins in today's world. I'm really good at, I could be really good at passionately condemning sinners. But that's not what helps anybody. And that's not what saves anybody. And you know what? I, 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 I feel bad for so many people like you. And, and I'm not, you know, y'all might go above me on. I'm not. I feel bad for so many people in churches that could reach people and could be equipped to reach people. But many of us, Many of us will never get the opportunity to reach sinners because the church has already categorized those sinners as unreachable. Now, I know y'all go above and beyond. Y'all are the standout. But isn't it true that so many people in today's world have been categorized as unreachable that we'll never get the opportunity because the church isn't prioritizing trying to figure out how to reach these people? Let me just say this. The world isn't getting any better. The sinful agendas aren't going to get any less aggressive. And we're going to be even more intimidated against going and reaching because there's going to be loud voices that tell us that we shouldn't do that. But let me just say this very, very clearly. It took courage and faith for Hannah to be different. It's going to take courage and faith for us to be different. Now, I, I'm pretty sure that if I said some of this stuff in, in some churches, people would throw rocks at me. I haven't said anything against what the Bible teaches and I'm not at all condoning any sin. But we have got to figure out how to reach people if there's going to be a next generation of believers as strong as there has been before. Unfortunately, the church was meant to assist us in this process, but it's mostly excused itself from the calling. But let me just say this. We will not have an excuse worth standing on when we stand before God on Judgment Day. Now, again, this is an in general over-the-top message, Samuel's ministry, but I felt like the, of Samuel's ministry, but I felt like it was a good time to discuss something that's very relevant. Make no mistake, Samuel comes at the nation with a message of repentance from idols. He, tell, he calls on them to repent from their idol worship. But, but the very fact that he ever went to them and interacted with them is a step that many of us would never take. 
Verse 3 is a classic if-then statement. He says, if you return to God, then put away these idols. So we we know this. We went over this Sunday. If we're ever going to change our actions, we've got to shift our affections. So, so he doesn't go at them and say, y'all have to stop doing all the sinning you're doing because they are doing the sinning because their affections are in the wrong places. So you know why the world is so caught up in sin? Because they're worshiping the wrong gods. They're worshiping the wrong God. They're worshiping idols. They're worshiping the culture. But unless we can ever convince them that Jesus is better and that Jesus is greater... That's where their faith is going to be. Just telling people to change their behavior is not Christianity. Christianity is not based on behavior. It's based on belief. The Bible says that beliefs are what makes behavior change possible. Colossians 3, if you want to flip over there and just look for a a few moments. Colossians 3 really narrows in on what it means to to be a Christian, but it emphasizes something that I think we often overlook. It says, if you were raised with Christ, as in all of us who have been given the potential of being saved through Jesus, seek those things which are above, which the, which, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. That's what repentance is. Put your mind, put your affection on Jesus. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know what that verse tells you? That you discover in Christ the ability to break free from your sins. You do not get rid of your sins and then get saved. You get saved and then you find in Christ the life that you need to be delivered. Samuel's message is just the same. Believe and then be delivered. God invites us to come as we are. Why is it so important that we preach a Jesus that can handle whatever sins people bring to him? Because if we don't do that, then those sins run the risk of ruining people's life for all eternity. So again, don't mishear me. I'm not excusing sin. Sinful lifestyles that control people are the reason they will spend an eternity in hell. That's how serious this is. If we care about people, we're going to figure out how to reach people with the gospel. Samuel calls on his generation to turn to the Lord, turn away from idols, to taste and see how much greater, how much sweeter the Lord is. And he says, God will deliver us. Look at verse number three at the end of verse three. Go through, walk through this with me. It says, if you return, then put away the idols. And what does it say at the very end? He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So let, let, let me connect some dots for you. The Philistines are a picture of sinful bondage. Over in, verse number, uh, over in verse number 13 and 14, it talks about the Philistines having taken away their territory. It talks about the Philistines' land being restored to Israel. That's a picture of sinful bondage, sins that control us. And it says when, God, when they turned to God, God restored them their territory. God restored them their lives. But notice the steps. They put their faith in God as they were. So Justin, is it possible for somebody who is caught up in sin 
who's been in a sinful lifestyle, who is still in a sinful lifestyle, is it possible for them to put their faith in God as they are? Absolutely. How did you come to Christ? You were a sinner who put your faith in Jesus. And let me, let me just ask you, have you been perfect ever since you got saved? No. But as you put your faith in Jesus and as you follow Jesus, he delivered you. I think the problem with a lot of us is we are very absolute about some sins and not about other sins, right? We're very absolute and we're very do or die about some sins, but other sins we're not. And I understand, I understand there's different, I get it all, I get all that. But the way we communicate to certain people, but the way we often are hypocritical about our own sins, it doesn't really do us any favors. The moral of the story is, if we have put faith in God, we should be delivered from our sins too. We shouldn't still be limping between the two. But nobody is getting away from their sin except for God to deliver them. That's why it's important we preach a God who can handle whatever sin you're dealing with. Not a God who condemns you before you even get to him. Jesus himself said, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Jesus is saying, hey, take a yoke like, you know, a donkey or an ox would be yoked on, 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 on by, by a farmer. He's saying, hey, put my yoke on your neck. I'm willing to put my yoke on you whether you are 100% there or not. Can you imagine Jesus being so trusty? Take Learn, find rest. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a God who is confident in his ability to save people. But isn't it true that we, we get so worried about fixing people that we never even share Jesus with them? And if we shared the Jesus that we were saved by with them, they might get saved. They might have hope. I, I, don't, I don't got all the answers. I don't. But I am very concerned about the future of a church that is unwilling, unwilling to roll its sleeves up and say, what do we got to do to reach people for Jesus? You say, well, what if we reach them and we do all this and, and, and they don't respond? At least we tried. If, they're going to, if they go to hell, they, I mean, hey, that's a big deal. I don't say that lightly. If they're going to go to hell, at least don't let them go without us trying to reach them. The message we need to preach is to, into all the lost is that to find our way to God, we need the help and delivering power of Jesus. I gotta be honest, a lot of people who claim to believe and behave as the Bible says need to hear this. We ourselves have shifted our faith out of God to worldly institutions. The message to all of us is to turn from idols and seek the Lord with our whole heart. He will, he will, he will deliver us. Now, we don't got time to look at Acts 17. Y'all should read that sometime yourself. But in Acts 17, remember Paul walked into a city with idols, idols everywhere. He walks up to him. He walks up to a, to a stage where they allow him to speak and he doesn't start preaching against idols, which he probably wanted to. He says, guys, I see y'all worshiping these idols. It tells me that y'all want someone to believe in. Y'all want something bigger than you to believe in. Can I introduce you to my God? Paul does not preach a sermon against idols, even though he could have. 
Paul preaches a sermon for Jesus. He preaches a sermon about Jesus and about, hey, you who are looking for and searching for and feeling your way towards an answer, a hope for the nations and the ages, let me tell you about the God of Israel who sent his son to do for us what these idols cannot do for you. In verse 7, the Philistines asked Samuel, or verse 8, they asked Samuel if he would be constantly praying for them as they were under this attack. And Samuel offers a sacrifice. And I believe in the way the Bible teaches or Samuel's ministry, as they would be invaded, Samuel would always be praying and he would always be offering a sacrifice for the nation. So that's why if you read the Old Testament, when, when they would go to war, there would always be somebody on the battlefield or at the base camp sacrificing while they were fighting. Well, the good news is we don't have to start offering sacrifices every time we have a hard time. Every time sin comes up against us and tries to enslave us again, we don't have to offer a sacrifice because we can lean on the sacrifice that was made for us. Does that make sense? There's no longer many sacrifices. There's one, and he did it once and for all. For 2 Corinthians says that, that he has delivered us, he will deliver us, and he will deliver us again. So we are constantly being delivered. 1 Corinthians 10 says, there is no temptation or test that has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will provide a way of escape as he does for the people in this passage, as he does for the people in Samuel's generation. It began by putting their faith and after they put their faith in God, they slowly begin to see their lives restored to them, but not before, not before. Samuel builds a, stone, builds a shrine and he calls it Ebenezer, which is Hebrew for God has helped us. I mean, I don't think I, don't think I preach, preach anything new here. Jesus is our rock. The Lord's our rock, our fortress, our deliverer in whom we can take refuge, our shield, the horn of our salvation. He is our stronghold. This should be the life verse for all of us. Jesus is strong enough to help us. He's strong enough to help all of us. So I, I know this message has been kind of all over the place, but there's two things we learned tonight. He's strong enough to help you. If you're here tonight and you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with something that is from the enemy, it could be an emotion, it could be an internal struggle, an external struggle. If you're struggling with sin, you don't have to try to offer a sacrifice to try to get God to fight your battles right now. You can lean on Jesus. He's already done what you need. And as a believer, you've already taken the first step. You know that he is your refuge and he's your rock. You can lean on him and trust in him and he will deliver you. But if you, if, you, if you are putting your faith in something besides Jesus, then no wonder you're still under bondage. No wonder you're still in slavery. And with that being said, it's no wonder there's a world full of people today in bondage to sin because their faith isn't in Jesus. It's no wonder the world is so lost because they're trusting in all the wrong things. All we can do, church, is keep lifting up Jesus. But we can't just lift up Jesus in places like this, because last time I checked, there's not a lot of people from the world in places like this. So either we do what we can do to get them in here, or we do what we gotta do to reach them out there. Either way, we've got some lifting up to do, don't we? 
Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw people to myself. Samuel did not save his nation. Samuel's God saved his nation. But do you know how Samuel's God got the attention of Samuel's nation? Samuel. You cannot save your nation. Your God can. But you know how your God can get your nation's attention? You. You can replace nation with husband, wife, kids, family, neighbor, everything. Lot to think about, isn't it? You guys always go above and beyond to reach people, to love people. But let us not grow weary in doing that. Samuel shows us there is hope. There is hope. But only if we don't give up and only if we remain persistent. If Samuel can go to a generation that worshiped idols, we can go to a generation that is as lost as ours is. It might not change everybody. But we aren't trying to change everybody. We're just trying to change somebody. Because that one person might be all that God requires you to reach. So let's pray for God to give us the courage and the boldness and the brightness to do just that. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for, Lord, confronting us with, it's not really all challenging. It's really a comforting story, a comforting reminder that you're a God who can do the impossible. Yeah, the world's a broken place. The world's a dark place. The world's a twisted place. People are involved in all kinds of sins that we can't even imagine. But that's because they don't know God. They don't know you. They don't know Jesus. Father, I pray you might would open our eyes tonight that we might would grow in compassion and grow in concern. And, and God, we all can't go out and reach the whole world ourselves, but we can reach somebody. God, I pray this message would challenge us all and, and, and confront all of us if we're worshiping idols, if we're trusting in the wrong source, then God, convict us of our sin and convict us of that and help us to put our faith in God that we might see deliverance. But God, for everybody here tonight, I pray you might would make us bold and make us bright that we might go out and reach our nation and reach our world while there's still time. We ask you for guidance and we thank you for all you've done in Jesus' name.